Year after year, one of the most consistent items on my do something list is to have fun with fashion. Exploring my personal style has added more joy to my everyday life and helped me feel more like myself on the regular. However, I have found that there are some brands I would love to explore more, but they are out of my typical price range, or there's the it item that I would love to try out, but without the commitment of keeping it. Enter Armoire. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, you can build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new to you styles. I just did my quiz and have selected a few dresses for the summer from Bowdoin, one of my favorite brands that I can't typically afford. And I also got a double breasted black blazer from a new to me designer, a classic item that I have been on the hunt for, but too scared to commit to until I know it's the one. For you expecting mamas, for those who are working or those who are style obsessed, who want to switch out your wardrobe with quality pieces without the designer prices, check out this woman owned company that has your style and your sustainability in mind. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash progress. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash progress to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to About Progress, a podcast devoted to ordinary people who are striving to improve themselves, overcome obstacles, and make something special of their lives, all while maintaining a healthy balance. In short, people who know life is about progress, not perfection. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you had a very Merry Christmas and that you are listening to this podcast during some definitely deserved downtime. I personally love to listen to podcasts when I go for walks and also to get chores done around the house that I like to avoid. So I hope you're up to something like that and and just had a really good time with friends and family. And if you didn't, if it was a lonely time for you, just know that there are people out there who still love you and I'm one of them. Today, we're going to hear from an amazing woman named Dina Taylor. Dina reached out to me with the most incredible story. She, as you will quickly learn in our interview, suffered a tremendous loss at a young age. She is a young widow, but she um, wanted to tell her story. We chatted on the phone for 15 minutes a few months ago, and I was just blown away by her eloquence and, and how strong her spirit is, how willing she is to fight for her and her, and her son. 
and and continue to live a happy life. So I asked her to come on and do a full interview and I just loved every minute of it. So you're going to learn a lot from Dina. While there are some heavy things here, the way she talks about it is just in an incredibly inspiring way. So I know this is one that is going to put your life in perspective, but also empower you to face your own trials with perseverance and strength like Dina has. So let's turn to our time together. I want to welcome Dina Taylor to the show. Hi, Dina. Hi, Monica. If you could start by telling our listeners a little bit more about you, that would be so great. Sure, absolutely. Um, So as you just said, my name is Dina Taylor. I am from Orange County, California. I'm born and raised in Orange County. Um, When I tell people that, I always follow it up with, it's a good thing I'm really well-traveled. Otherwise, I would be a really bad stereotype. I grew up <laughs> here. I graduated from high school here. I went to college here. I got married here. Now I live here with my family. Oh, I love um, that. So this is home for me. Um, well, how I come you ever move? It's paradise. Four. So Right? I know. Yeah, yeah. Anywhere you would ever go, the weather would not be nearly be as good no. as it is here. No. <laughs> um, I am the oldest of two, so I grew up with um, my mom, my dad, and then my sister, who's two years younger than me, and um, I work in the tech space in HR technology. I've been with a company that is based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, but I work from home, and I've been with them for about four years, so it's a really great opportunity to contribute to a pretty cool organization and then get to travel to visit clients, but work from home um, when I'm not visiting clients, so it offers a nice balance for me in that regard as well. Great. Uh, So you, we actually got to talk on one of your business trips, which is so nice of you to do that. (laughs) Um, And gosh, you're just one of those people that reached out to me. You told me a little bit about your story. We talked and I was like, this woman's incredible. We need to have her on. We need to learn a little bit more about you. Um, We would, we're going to talk primarily about how you dealt with the death of your first husband and and learn to still embrace the life that you had and grow and develop who you are. But we need to start a little bit more about the roots of you. Um, so if you can tell me a little bit more about the beginning of your adult um, adulthood <laughs> and, and perhaps that began with your relationship with your late husband, Dan, or maybe that began before then. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mentioned I'm an Orange County girl born and raised, and um, part of that story is I went to Cal State Fullerton, which is the university here in Orange County, one of them, um, and that's where I met Dan. So I was 20 years old, um, and I met him. I was looking for an a on-campus job um, because I was trying to find something that would pay relatively well but that didn't require an awful lot of effort, and yeah. so um, <laughs> I was trying to find a job at the school newspaper, which is the Daily Titan. And I walked into the office and Dan was the sales manager. And I turned in an application to him and we started talking. And the next thing I knew, I was offered a job and I was asked out on a date. And so that was my first interaction with him. It was a really cool, it was a cool experience for me too. I was 20. I was like, man, I I got a job and I'm going out for coffee. It's kind of, it was a neat experience. Um, And, you know, Dan and I really grew up together. We, Hmm. like I said, I met him when I was 20 years old. He proposed when I was 25. We got married when I was 26. Hmm. So it was really my adult life. 
um, was growing up side by side with him. He was four years older than I was, but we were both college seniors when we met. So our joke was it was always obvious who the smarter one was of the <laughs> two of us. Oh, that's <laughs> um, great. Um, yeah. And so we graduated from college and both got jobs um, at the same company, actually, after college. And the, the rest was sort of history. Oh, I love that. So tell us about the transition to marriage then for you guys. What was it like those early years? Yeah, it was really fun, you know, and mm. especially, especially now, you know, several years later, um, you know, you have, I think it's just not, it's a part of growing up, right? You have more mm. responsibilities the older that you get. And so when I think back about that at that time of, you know, we had graduated from college, we'd been out of college for a few years, we had jobs, but no other responsibility other than ourselves. And so when we got married in those first few years, it was just like, it almost felt like we were playing house. You know, <laughs> it was our only responsibilities were ourselves. And it was fun. We would go on random weekends away together. We would sort of dream about buying our house, um, which we ended up doing. And so life at that time was just a lot of dreaming and planning and being really happy and adventurous in the moment, which was a lot of fun. It's good that you have those memories too, to just know that you embrace that time that you had together instead of maybe being glued to your jobs or even glued to your phones, I guess, you know? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's a good point too, because this was even before Blackberries and iPhones. Yeah. Um, I think Blackberries were just starting to come out at the <laughs> uh-huh. time. And so our jobs, I mean, we made a lot less money at the time, but because we had so much less responsibility, we were able to just hang out with each other. Um, we lived in an apartment complex that we kind of called a cruise ship because there was a <laughs> pool and a clubhouse. And so I think fun is probably the most dominant world word of those early years. Oh, I'd love to hear about that. I mean, I think a lot of us can relate to that for those um, newlywed years, you know? Um, it's, I don't know, it's just fun to hear and compare. <laughs> so you were saying um, when we talked that you two faced some obstacles um, in your marriage together, and um, I just want you to tell us about that instead of me doing the telling. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, again, life is really fun and, and really limited responsibility. And so we always felt really fortunate. You know, we didn't necessarily go through any trials or struggles that um, just couples in general go through. And um, but kind of two things were happening. One is we sort of threw caution to the wind and thought we wouldn't necessarily plan for a family, but we wouldn't not plan for a family. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't necessarily happening. So we were just sort of watching and waiting and seeing and we had been married for a few years before we thought maybe one of us should go get checked out just to make sure everything was okay. Yeah. Um, and while that was going on, Dan had a back injury. And so his back injury catapulted into three back surgeries within the course of 90 days. And one of those back surgeries led to a staph infection. And oh so he was just faced with these huge trials of health yeah. while we were sort of emotionally thinking about babies and wondering what was happening. And so life, life took a bit of a curveball twist for mm-hmm. us um, a couple of years into our marriage and lasted for, for quite a while, lasted for about three years. Wow. Well, how did he originally hurt his back? You know, it's like the question that he even wondered for a long time. Um, it, it was either golf or an old football injury when he was in high school. You know, he was a young guy who's um, Thirty. He was in his early thirties when yeah. the back injury first came up. Um, 
So I don't really know. I mean, to this day, I'm not 100% sure. It wasn't like there was a catastrophic accident. It was just one of those things where he woke up one morning and just really struggled to move. Um, And after a bunch of tests, they identified that there, there actually was an injury that was going on. So he's has this injury, he's had three surgeries, and then the infection, which, I mean, that alone is huge on top of facing infertility. How, how did it go with the infection from there? So the infection was really scary. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the first back surgery was in December. The second back surgery was a couple, couple months after that. And then the infection was discovered the first week of April. So it was just a lot that happened mm. all in one period. Um, so he was hospitalized for about 10-ish days when the wow. infection hit. And then they gave him a catheter that just, it was a, I shouldn't say catheter. It was an, it was an IV. I liken it to a catheter because it was just sort of permanently in his arm for quite a while. Um, but it operated like an IV would. And there was just a pack of antibiotics attached to his hip. And those were really hard days, really hard. It was three months he was at home, um, just kind of on constant medication. And the antibiotics had their own set of side effects that were just, you know, emotionally challenging because he was just a young, active guy that mm-hmm. was on the couch until this infection was healed. Um, and the drugs themselves were hard. You know, it was a combination of a lot of different medications in order to keep him comfortable and kill the thing that was in his body. And I still had to work while this was going on because yeah. we had a mortgage and a life that we were building. And so it was really hard. It was hard on him. It was hard on me. Um, it was a challenging time for the both of us, and probably, certainly the most challenging up until, you know, about a year later. Mm-hmm. So after after he recovered, I mean, how long did that take, actually, from him to recover from that? So it's funny. Um, this all happened. This all really began, like I said, in December, and he ended up going back to work on July 30th. Mm. So it was about a seven-month experience, and oh. I know that because... After he died, I found a piece of paper that had all of our passwords um, for everything so that I could get access to things that maybe otherwise I wouldn't have. Yeah. And July 30th was actually the password. So that was a big day for him. It was like oh. a monumental day. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going back to work. Life is coming back. So tell me a little bit more about Dan. What was he like? I mean, you talked about how he's active. He liked to be productive. He obviously loved his work and being um, involved in, in life and, you know, being on top of things. Tell us, tell me more about him. Yeah, he, um, you know, I think he was one of those people that was generous in life overall, generous with his heart, generous with his time, generous with his money. Um, he's really hyper-focused on his family and his friends, big, huge football fan, huge mm-hmm. sports fan in general, um, just this big personality that people would naturally gravitate toward. Um, one of the things about him that I really admired that I try really hard to remember, you know, even now, and I hope to remember over time is he operated in a way that was very confident with his own convictions. Like if he yeah. felt good about something, that's all he needed. He didn't need reassurance or comfort or recognition from anybody in order to satisfy him. It was like, if he knew he was right about something, if he was going to follow his instinct and do it. Um, and it was something I consistently admired about him and, and really work on on a personal level as well. Well, it seems like that's how he um, operated with you as well, even from your mm-hmm. first meeting, which is yeah. really sweet to see that correlation. <laughs> that's right. I'm going to hire her and I'm going to take her out on a date. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, I love it. So you had seven months of this really hard time with, you know, his, his surgeries and his recovery. And where were you in with the fertility issues by that point, by the end of that seven months? You know, it had just taken a backseat. It just, I mean, obviously we were in no position to start a family at that time. Mm. Um, and we, he and I did a lot of talking, obviously, um, during this experience and his health really dominated, obviously our conversations and, um, everything else really was sidestepped. And during those conversations, we had thought, you know, we're just not even going to focus on anything else. It's just the most important thing to get Dan healthy again yeah. um, and really get our marriage healthy again and our lives mm-hmm. healthy again. When something happens that tips the scales like that toward one person so much, it's mm-hmm. natural for your spouse um, to just, you know, put all your attention on that. And I don't regret that. That was the right thing to do at the yes. time. But everything else just slipped by the wayside. Mm. So I think it was important for us to just center ourselves once again before thinking about a family. Oh, it's incredibly smart. You know, so how, how was that process then uh, to getting healthy again, you know, both, you know, physically, as we've already mentioned, but emotionally and within your marriage as well? Yeah, that was hard. I mean, it was hard physically and it was hard emotionally because there's no book on any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, the physically, the book is you go to physical therapy, you, you know, manage medication, you work closely with a doctor, you get your strengths back, you go to the gym. Um, but the emotional side of all of that there isn't a book about it. You know, there isn't a book that says you're going to watch your husband cry because he's going to have a hard time getting out of bed or, Mm. you know, your husband, you and your husband are going to sleep on the floor downstairs for a week straight because he won't be able to get upstairs by himself and he doesn't want to be left alone. There are emotional obstacles and elements to this where I think a parent doing these things with a child is different than a spouse supporting one another on it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's just not a lot out there that offers any guidance on it. So we trusted our instinct. We talked a lot. We kept communication open as often as possible. Um, And we just thought, and I still believe, you know, as long as we remained completely honest with each other about how we were feeling, not just how it was going, we would be okay. Hmm. You know, people miss that so easily, though. It's so easy to slip into not communicating those feelings and kind of living parallel lives, even in the midst of such great hardship. Yeah. And, you know, the para- I'm, it's interesting that you brought up the parallel lives, too, because that's, that's what started to happen mm-hmm. um, through no fault of anybody. But of it's course. just, you know, when something so big takes over, it's just, you can't help but have that happen. Mm-hmm. And so to get that back, it's, it takes an effort. And I think that that's where the communication comes into play. So how did you know when it was time to start trying for a child again, when you felt that you were both in a good enough place to make that happen? So we, Dan went back to work in July, and um, we just thought, okay, now it's time to focus on ourselves once again. We took a weekend away in August and just thought, you know, we need to get away from work. We need to get away from, from everything, all of the noise and the distraction and just really focus on one another. Um, and that was actually the weekend that we got pregnant. And so <laughs> I don't know if it was some sort of, like some sort of message from the universe no. that maybe you just needed some quiet in your life, but it was that weekend that we got a little bit of quiet is the weekend that we got pregnant. Oh, that's, there's a lesson there too, right? Totally. So totally. Tell me- and it's actually advice I give. It's advice. I'm sorry. It's, it's advice I give to my friends all the time too. Like have a little bit of quiet. I think that's, that's mm. when it'll happen. Yeah. So, so how was pregnancy for you then? 
It was a whole bucket of miserable. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> Be honest with us. Just say it how I it know. is. You know, like, <laughs> this is a safe place. That's right. It was, um, it was, my pregnancy was very challenging on my body. So I was sick from week seven on. Yeah. And when I say sick, I don't mean like queasy or nauseous. I mean, I would get up in the morning, I would brush my teeth, I would throw up in the sink. Um, and I would mm-hmm. throw up after every bite of food going on until after wow. I had my son. It was really rough. And so I admire every single woman who is growing a child inside of her because it is such a hard thing to do. And I had a really rough time with it. You know, I was just reading a post today of this of this woman who um, had had a hard time uh, getting pregnant originally, but has, you know, is in her second pregnancy now fairly easy. And people have been criticizing her for being, <laughs> you know, for having a hard time with her pregnancy, you know, and she was honest and being like, just because, you know, I am grateful for this baby doesn't mean that this is really hard. And I'm glad that you'd yeah, be honest so, about that with you. you yeah. Know? Yeah. You know what's so funny about that? I think I commented on that post. I saw the same Are you post kidding? you. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I commented on it because I was so like, gosh, be honest. What, what you are doing when you are pregnant is the most magical, amazing, wonderful thing. Hmm. But it's okay to say it's really hard as you're doing it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with admitting it's really hard. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. When I read that, I thought about you because I, I had known from our conversation just how really, really hard pregnancy was for you. So, so okay. So you're, get, you're getting through so many <laughs> trials, one after the next, Dina. I mean, this is amazing to yeah. me. Um, really hard pregnancy. How did Dan support you through that time and how did you get through it? We just, you know, it's one of those things that you just, do like mm. you know you have the baby the baby's not going back and you <laughs> just sort of it was similar to where I would lay on the floor with him when he was recovering from back surgeries he would sit on the floor with me in the bathroom when I'm throwing up in the in the toilet or oh, yeah. you know <laughs> when my hip started to hurt really badly which no one tells you is going to happen like you know yeah. your body is changing and that hurts and when that started to happen to me and I couldn't get out of the shower yeah. Um, you know, he would just come up and help me out and not necessarily say anything about it. And hmm. when I would have to throw up in the bushes because I can't make it inside fast enough, he would just stand there and hold my hair back. So it's like oh. he would do exactly for me what I had to do for him just a few months before. Oh, my goodness. That's really neat to think about that. You just kind of traded spaces for each other. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, tell me when life really hit <laughs> here. I mean, now it's like what else can can go wrong and I think you I mean you got it is <laughs> what you, you I know what you what you experienced so you're near the tail end of your pregnancy and you take it away from here so yeah life definitely hit um so it was March 5th 2015 and you know normal day normal work day um it was a Friday Thursday it was a Thursday Thursday is, is when it was and it was just one of those um I didn't think anything of it when I got up that morning. Like, I had no idea that anything was going to be any, be different. Um, Dan gets home that night, you know, goes into this room. We called it the man room um, because it had these blue walls with these San Diego Chargers memorabilia everywhere. It was <laughs> sort of his room in the house, yeah. and I was very okay with that. Um, mm-hmm. So he gets home. He 
goes into his recliner because the recliners in that room were where he was most comfortable because of his back. So it was not unusual or not abnormal for him at all to lay in that recliner and watch ESPN or watch something on TV just to have some ease and relieve his back um, before kind of doing some other things. And I will never forget, I walked by his office as he was sort of dozing in and out on the recliner and I was getting some laundry and he looked at me and he said, Hey D, did you know Thomas Jefferson was buried in a pine box? I love you very much. Hmm. And I looked at him and I was holding a basket of laundry and I looked at him and I was like, well, that's weird. But I thought you're just kind of dozing in and out, whatever. Um, so I went upstairs, I put the laundry away. I went back downstairs and he had fallen asleep and he was snoring really loudly. And I just thought, okay, well, he's clearly super comfortable. I'm just going to let him stay down here. I won't wake him up. And but he was snoring so loudly. And I just thought maybe he's going to wake up at some point and maybe his back's bothering him today and he might need help upstairs or something. So I'll just sit in the recliner next to him. So I sat in that recliner for a while. Um, I was playing games on my phone. I was responding to emails. I was just hanging out downstairs because I felt like I wanted to be close to him. Mm -hmm. And it was about three in the morning that um, I decided I, I wanted to go upstairs. You know, I was also an uncomfortable pregnant lady, and so sleeping in that recliner was felt good on my back, too. Uh -huh. um, but I decided I needed a good night's sleep since I had work tomorrow. So I went ahead and went upstairs. It was like three, a little bit after three in the morning. I still heard him snoring downstairs, and I turned the light off and I closed my eyes. And my eyes popped open um, about 20 minutes later, and it, the house was silent. And I knew something was wrong. It was too weird that it was silent. Um, so I ran downstairs and I turned the light on in his office and he was still sitting in that recliner, but his head was cocked over to one side and there was foam sticking straight out of his mouth and there was fluid dripping out of his nose. Mm. And I just knew, I mean, I just knew you see it in the movies, you hear about it in books you read. Um, it's nothing like those things and you still just, I, wow. I knew. So I grabbed the phone, I called 911, I tilted the recliner all the way back because I knew my belly, I wouldn't be able to get him down onto the floor. Yeah. And I called 911 and I gave him CPR. Um, I did that for six minutes until the paramedics arrived. Mm. And then they got him, they took over resuscitation effort for about 10 minutes or so. I sat in the living room with a police officer at this time. So I wasn't able to see what they were doing, but I heard them and I heard the machines. I called my parents. I called his parents. I don't remember those conversations, but I know they happened um, yeah. because they, they were all at the hospital later. And so the ambulance transported him to the hospital. And I remember thinking the whole time, I don't even know why you're doing this. I know what happened. I don't know what the purpose is here. But I just was quiet and didn't say anything and thought maybe I'm wrong. And we get to the hospital and it's about 44, 46 minutes later, um, the doctor came out and pulled me aside into this room that had very similar leather furniture as the room in Dan's man cave. Huh. Um, and they said, despite all their efforts, he was gone. So he was 35. Yes. I was 32 when this happened. That's what I was just going to ask you. I mean, despite yeah. all the, I mean, the incredible health struggles you had both faced, you know, the prior year and a half, or was it even more than that? It had been a few. It had been a few, a few years. years. His, his back issues really started in his early thirties, but yeah, it, yeah, it was in. It was over the past probably three years total, with the most significant part being in the last two. I would say. 
But this still strikes me as so sudden, you know, and so unexpected. Um, what, what were some answers? Did you get any answers on what had happened to him? It was super sudden and super unexpected. And there were a lot of theories out there. Um, And, you know, you can only get so many answers without you starting to spiral into a bit of a rabbit hole. But the the most likely conclusion was he had had a doctor's appointment that week and they had prescribed him an anti-nerve pain as well as a pain medication. And so it was likely a combination of those medications um, that made it accidental that no one could have anticipated or known. Um, but that was, that was one possibility. Another possibility is that he had had seizures a couple months prior to all of this. Um, they mm-hmm. thought again, as a result of some medicine for his back. And so it could have been one of the medications sparked a seizure. How frustrating has that been for you then to not really know? Um, has it been something you've had to work through just not knowing for sure? Yeah, this, I mean, there are lots of horrible parts about kind of, not necessarily recovering, but understanding Mm. and feeling a sense of closure with everything. And the response to the why question has probably been the hardest thing for me. Of course. Um, You know, after it happened, I, and in hindsight, I think I only got away with this because no one could really say no to a pregnant widow. Um, But I mean, I interviewed everybody. I was in front of doctors and coroners and I was just determined to find every answer I possibly could. And no one could give it to me. I mean, there were just no straight answers out there um, because our our bodies are mysterious things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's just at some point you have to suspend a sense of need for the why and just accept that it happened. And that is a very hard thing to do. My goodness, I feel like that would take a lifetime, you know? Yeah, yeah. So how far along were you at this point? I was 30 weeks. Um, mm. So, I, I mean, I was all belly. I was 30 mm-hmm. weeks. I hadn't yet entered the really uncomfortable part of my third trimester. Um, I was wrapping up my second trimester. But, um, or I, I just entered, actually, now that I think mm-hmm. about it. I just entered my third trimester. Yeah. Um, so things weren't, my body wasn't physically uncomfortable yet. I was still strong. I was, you know, working out and I was healthy. But I was still throwing up every day. And so that got worse, obviously, after this With happened. The stress. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the stress took a toll. So you are a 32, 32-year-old pregnant widow planning yep. the funeral of your 35-year-old husband. Um, you've already been through years and years of trials there. I mean, what on earth were you thinking during this time? What was your frame of mind? I didn't, when it first happened, um, there was a sense of bewilderment, I guess, a lot of confusion. Um, I did a lot of staring, but then, you know, my sister, it was the first or second day after Dan died and I was sitting on my bed and my sister at one point looked at me and she's not an overly emotional person necessarily. I mean, she's, she's my, she's one of my favorite people in the world and she is my sister and I love her, but she's not necessarily a person that um, is affectionate or overly emotional. Mm-hmm. But on this day, she stood in my room and she stared at me and said, Dina, you are literally the only person in the world who will survive this. I know you will survive this. And there was something about her saying that, that I was like, hmm. okay, I'm going to do this. This is going to be fine. And I think it, it was wow. 
that message in general, but that message coming from her was really impactful. And that's when, you know, on that Thursday that Dan had come home, I had been at the mall shopping for my baby shower outfit, which my baby shower was going to be that Saturday. And that was the outfit I ended up wearing to the funeral. And so it was like, I went from thinking about thank you notes for the baby shower presents to writing his eulogy. I spoke at his funeral because I felt like I had to. Mm. Um, and so it just did that shift in mindset to go from preparing for a new life and then talking about the loss of life was just really bizarre. But Hmm. I think that those words, like you will get through this, you have to get through this, that, that helped me do it. You know, it seems like it's hard to say the right thing in those moments. Um, and I like to hear that it was that someone saying the right thing that helped you with that tipping point and, and reframing how you wanted to deal with it. Um, was there any other thing that happened that helped you get that strength? Yeah, I think, um, so I, I very affectionately refer to my tribe now all the time. Um, Mm. and my tribe is my team of my most favorite people. But, you know, when this happened, what's really interesting, and I still think about this a lot, the core people at my tribe are people that I've known in some cases all my life that maybe, you know, would come and go out of life just as, as is common and normal as we grow up and have families of our own. You know, you don't necessarily keep in contact with people as closely as you otherwise would. But I mean, my, my three best friends from high school, two of which live out of state now, um, flew in and stayed close by with me that mm-hmm. entire week or a few days before the funeral. My colleagues, um, who are really my best friends, they flew in on their own dime um, mm-hmm. for the funeral. And those who couldn't fly in wow. staged a candle lighting and sent me pictures afterwards. And so... Mm-hmm. I know that people say the wrong things and there were a lot of people who said the wrong things to me when this was going on too. Mm -hmm. But that those actions of people, I mean, I, one of my girlfriends, I remember I saw her a few weeks afterwards and she said, I was thinking about you, Dina, the other day when I was blow drying my hair and all of a sudden I just felt so bad for Dan because he's not with you anymore. And so these honest, yeah, it's like honest feedback and just genuine wanting to be with me even if I hadn't seen people in a long time, really spoke to me. And even now as I move forward, um, that tribe of mine is really critical to that. And so I would say that that was a big piece of it. Just me watching, you know, 600 people filling a church and watching me speak on behalf of, Mm. you know, my husband who had just passed away, that, that really said a lot to me. Wow. You know, and I'm sure as time goes on, there are things that are helpful as well. Um, I'm sure there's people who just uh, avoid you or there's people who might be a little too present. <laughs> you know, this it's like a hard thing to know what you need and how other people can meet it. But, for, you know, what what is some advice you have for people who have a loved one who is going through a really traumatic thing like you have faced, um, as time goes on, you know, rather than just right after, um, that was especially helpful for you. Yeah. I will say, I know this might sound funny, but, um, the, the best comment or the best piece of advice I ever got was from my friend, Elisa, who's one of my best friends. Um, I would call her sometimes, 
even after it had happened and I would just sort of be quiet on the phone, but I just needed to hear a voice. Mm. And her comment back to me was, you are not always going to feel this way. And I think that that those are such strong, powerful words. Instead of saying, I'm sorry, or you're so strong, you'll get through this. Um, people would say, you know, God only gives, gives you what you can handle. And I know they meant well, but I hated hearing that. Yeah. Um, I hear that so, often. You know, comments, <laughs> You know oh what I mean? Gosh. Like, I it, hear how often yeah. it, it's not helpful <laughs> to, to say that. No, no, it's not. Because what it makes you think is, well, God, I changed my mind. I can't handle it. Take it back. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely. Not good. <laughs> hmm. But this notion of, I promise it won't always feel this way, is really impactful. Because then it's like, it acknowledges the fact that it's really sucky in the moment, but it's going to get better. And you don't know when, and you don't know mm. what better means. But sure. there's a new normal out there, and it's just nice to have some hope. And so mm-hmm. I think that optimism and hope component is really important for people to keep in mind. Like, as you are friends with family and, and friends who are going through trials and tribulations, reminding them of hope and optimism, I think, makes a big difference. Yeah, and in a way that they're still acknowledging your pain, too. I feel like that's what I'm yeah. getting from how they how they communicated that. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's acknowledging that it's hard, right? Yes. It's saying, you know, this is hard and it's awful and you're, it's, it's not always going to be like that. It will get better. So what, what was, well, what has been, uh, the, what has the mourning process been like for you? So that was really hard um, for a couple of reasons. I only had about 10 weeks to get through the hardest part of it yes. because I was going to have a baby. Mm. Yep. And so... I, you know, I'm really type A. I, I'm, my brain kind of works in its own way that I sometimes can't explain. And so it was easy for me to get through the logistics of everything. You know, I went from two incomes to one income. And so I refinanced my house and I took a closer look at my finances and I hired a nanny and I got all that stuff out of the way relatively quickly, mm-hmm. um, which helped. But then it was like getting used to the quiet house and yeah. trying to figure out what to do with that man room downstairs and mm. what do I do about his clothes and his stuff and how on earth am I going to tell my son about what happened to his mom? And, you know, all those thoughts were flooded in my mind that it didn't really give me much time to think about the loss of Dan. When I did think about his loss, um, I would just be mad. Yeah, I would be mad or confused. Mm. So sadness wasn't really a dominant emotion. Um at all, actually. It took a long time for me to feel sad. Mm. For the longest time, it was just, I'm going to get through all the logistics of life, and then I'm just going to sit, and I'm going to be really mad. Yeah. I'm going to be mad at him. I'm going to be mad that all of this happened. Mm. It took yeah. a long time for me to get through the mad. Um, and then when I did, you know, I tried to focus on the memories that we had before his back injury and before life just got tricky, yeah. and that helped, too. Hmm. I I feel like that would be my primary response as well. Just anchor. Yeah. And that's um that's a really powerful and really hard emotion to get over like you said. It, yeah. I mean, I I feel like I would the way that I would describe it to people, to my closest people when I was going through it is it just I mean, and people say this otherwise when they describe anger, but it really is like a fire. And it would never quite get put out, right? I could do the best I could in order to make it go away, but there was always a little spark there. And the tiniest thing 
would make it come up. And it was anger that was on the inside, not on the outside. You know, it's not like I was screaming or throwing temper tantrums. It was just really mad on the inside. And my natural tendency just in life in general is to cut myself off from people when I'm feeling overwhelmed with emotion. And you can't do that when you're going through something this powerful um, and this scary. And so I had to force myself then to be around people, which was unnatural for me. And so it was very, very hard. It was a very challenging time in my life, those 10 weeks. Well, you have so many eyes on you too. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I would say that sometimes, too. Like, I would say, I just feel like I'm too public right now. Like, everybody knows where I am at all times. And, you know, I don't want to be babied. And I just feel like people are paying too much attention to me. And so that became really challenging, too. I I lost a lot of privacy in those 10 weeks. That would be super challenging, especially as you are also navigating the upcoming birth of your child and the birth of your child. So tell me about that transition into motherhood. What was it like having your baby in a much different way than you had anticipated? And then how did having baby Jack help you uh, come to terms with things in a way that actually was more healing um, rather than letting that anger continue to ruminate? So my plan (laughs) when I got pregnant was to have Jack with no drugs. I was going to be, you know, I'm going to do this the natural way. It had taken a long time for me to get pregnant. I'm just going to keep everything as natural and as, in my mind, peaceful as possible. Mm-hmm. And then all of this happened, and that obviously went completely out the window. Yeah. Um, and so I, my one of my best friends had recommended I get a midwife, which I did. And so um, she was sort of on call and on standby to help me through the experience. I stayed living in my house by myself um, mm. after Dan died. I, what I needed, I, yeah. a lot of people argued with me. Um, my father is the one actually who, who, when people would say, I really don't think you should be leaving Dina alone, he would say, no one knows my daughter better than I do. This is what she needs. This is what yeah. we'll do for her. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Later, yeah, it was great. Later, I found out my dad and mom left with the garage door unlocked for like a year and a half, just in case I ever needed to come home. And so I always tell that story as (laughs) a testament. Like, I'm in my 30s, and they're still my parents, you know? Absolutely. um, Hmm. Yeah, but I, so I stayed living at home. And I lived at home until, you know, uh, until one morning, it was the day after my due date. And Jack still wasn't here. So I went to the doctor and found out that I was actually having contractions that I didn't feel. And when I look back on that, I am convinced that my body was just so numb, I couldn't feel anything. Mm-hmm. I just, and I so believe it because I just don't know very many women who are feeling contractions um, that don't feel anything. And, and I was sent to the hospital and I was hooked up to a monitor and my sister and my mom came and they were all watching the monitor and, you know, you could see the contractions on the monitor mm-hmm. and they're all staring at me like, how do you not feel this? And I, I just didn't feel anything. So um, he needed to come out because I was having those contractions and mm-hmm. um, but my body wasn't ready yet. And so I had a C-section and one of those best friends that I mentioned earlier, one of the three, my friend Amanda, is who was in the room with me holding my hand. Um, and they made the incision and out comes, or just before Jack came out, I looked at Amanda and I started crying and I said, this is just not how it's supposed to be. Yeah. And she squeezed my hand and she said, it just doesn't do you any good to say that. Don't say that again. And that was actually the last time I had said those words and meant them. 
Um, wow. So that was sort of phase one of this, right? Like uh-huh. I said that right before Jack came into the world and that was it. I didn't say it again. And then he came into the world less than two seconds after that. Hmm. And he took his first breath and hmm. I was laying there. And all of a sudden I thought, gosh, 10 weeks ago, I was breathing into Dan and it wasn't working. I couldn't do it. And I kept trying for six minutes, trying to breathe for Dan to bring him back and I couldn't do it. But I've been breathing for Jack this whole time because now Jack is here and he just took a breath. Hmm. And there was something in that moment like that hit me and I thought, okay, I, I can do this. I'm going to do this. And I'm not just going to do it okay. I'm going to do it better than I thought I was going to do it before. And so there was just, hmm. I didn't feel motherhood in the sense of I was in love with Jack right away. I did fall in love with Jack, but it didn't happen in that exact moment. In that exact moment, I felt a sense of understanding about what had happened. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like that actually, that was my experiences too. Um, just not, not that natural overwhelming surge that so many people talk about, yeah. but that gradual growth, um, which I think is every bit as powerful, you know, and, and for most of us normal. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> going through that. So how how old is Jack now? So Jack's now almost two and a half. He okay. um, I lost count of all of the months. Yeah. So he's 20, 29 months. Um, so he's getting close to two and a half to just like just around the corner. Um, and he's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, he's he's this little ball of personality that everybody, my parents especially say reminds them of me. Um, and I frequently feel like I need to call my mom and apologize for being such a stubborn <laughs> little kid because that's what I'm dealing with now. Yeah. Uh-huh. So t- two and a half years. Oh, he sounds really, really fun. But, you know, yes. I wonder if this is similar to, you know, pregnancy. I mean, you want to get pregnant so badly and then when you face it it's really really hard and motherhood can be that way too it's something you think about for so long but the transition in itself can be really difficult on top of dealing with a significant loss um but what was that like for you I mean I you just nailed it on the head it's it was a hundred percent like that and Mm. I because I had a c-section I had a scar right and I would always look at that scar as okay the more this scar heals, the more I'll be healed inside, right? So the less I'm going to get farther away from the morning, the more my scar heals. And then, you know, after a couple of months, I thought, gosh, the more this scar, the scar heals, the better mother I'll be. So mm-hmm. it's like those two things is what I kept thinking about. And then my dad said something to me along the way that, that was really poignant, I thought, which is everything in this life grows with time except for grief, Grief gets lesser with time. So I thought, okay, it's, the more Jack grows, the more, the better mom I'll be and the less of a widow and person in mourning I'll be. And it helped. I mean, I'm watching mm. a scar disappear and I'm watching my son grow. And it's, it's true. It's like real life examples of the evolution of time, which was really helpful. Dina, you need to write a book. You just have such a powerful <laughs> way with these words, you know, um, I've had a lot of time to think, believe me. (laughs) Yeah. But, but what I love about so much of your story is this, this agency that you have held on to this choice within yourself of, um, not necessarily pushing emotions and grieving and appropriate reactions aside. I don't feel like that's how you've done it at all, but more of a choice to carry on. 
Yeah, I so I appreciate that a lot because that is what I hope um, I am and how I am. I say a lot um, that I don't believe in luck and I don't believe in luck. I also don't believe in forcing anything unnatural. Mm. And that's how I've approached these experiences. Um, it's like, okay, if it's not working out the way that I thought it was going to work out, then that means I'm forcing something unnatural and I need to stop because I don't have control over it. Mm. And I don't believe in luck. I don't believe that the world is that chaotic, that something so bad could happen to somebody. And then, you know, this really amazing kid can come into the world as a result. It just doesn't make sense to me that way. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped believing in the notion of luck. And I think that we have a little bit more control over our destinies than that. So was, was there anything in particular that helped you hold on to that agency, this choice that you determined that you had and how to face this time and this transition and the rest of your life, actually, um, that, that enabled you to hold on to that choice? I don't think it was, I don't think it was one particular thing or event. I think it was more of a need, I guess, to just be authentic and do the best I could. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I felt like as long as I stay true to who I am and don't, you know, I uh, believe that I don't have control over anything else other than my own behavior. And as long as I behave the way that I believe is the right way, then I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And so that just helped me get through everything. And it helped me, it helped give me a lot of confidence and a time when my confidence was really rattled. You know, I went yeah. from, wife to being a pregnant wife to being a pregnant widow to being a mom to being a single mom there were too many labels thrown in there and mm -hmm. so it got really confusing for me and so I would just tell myself as long as you're an authentic Dina this is going to be okay it doesn't matter what label is attached to you hmm. you know staying true to who you are that's something that uh, really stood out to what you just said to me. How did you stay true to yourself um, the past two and a half years? What did that look like? I made choices um, and did things that I think could be controversial and that um, <laughs> some people wouldn't necessarily agree with. But probably the best example of this is I had Jack on May 11th. And three weeks later, I flew out. I had a C-section and had Jack May 11th. And three weeks later, I flew out to Salt Lake City for a conference at work and bless my leadership's heart for letting me do that, even mm -hmm. though they didn't want me to yeah. and bless my colleagues for not saying too much to me about how they thought it was a bad idea. And my parents for being there to care for Jack while I was gone. But I was honest and I said, my, my brain is really confused right now and I don't have a lot of focus and I need yes. a little bit of a place where I'm around people to do a job that I know I can do and it'll help clear my head and I'll be a better mom. Mm. And so not a common decision, right. To go back to work after three weeks, especially after what I had been through, uh -huh. but I knew that was the right thing to do for me. So I did it and it was the right decision. I came back with a clearer head and more direction and more focus. And I was better for Jack. Oh my goodness. Dina, that your strength, it just keeps coming up to me. You know, I, I really admire you for holding on to what you know is best for you. Um, despite, I'm sure, a lot of critique, especially for even something oh, like yeah. that. So so what else? What else has um, have you been uh, holding on to the past two and a half years? 
So I, I do think that on authenticity is the biggest piece. And then I mentioned my tribe, and I hold on to them fiercely. And so, um, you know, it's my tribe that encouraged me to start seeing people again and letting my heart feel love again. It's, you know, my team and my tribe that are there when I call in the middle of the night and say, I really can't tell if Jack has, you know, the sniffles or if I need to take him to the emergency room. You know, mm-hmm. it's these close circle of people around me that haven't gone away um, and I'm never going to let them go, really. So they don't have a choice in the matter. Um <laughs> But I do think that's another big one, right? Like this realization that I had that we're not meant to live on an island alone. And, you know, we have people in our lives who are not just there for companionship and conversation. They're really there to lift us up and, you know, Mm. amplify our strengths, really, and fill the gaps of our weaknesses. So there is no, you know, quote unquote, moving on from such a huge loss, but I do see you carrying on with your life. Um, and how did this work in, into meeting your, your new husband, Rick, and making him a part of this new life that you were building for yourself and for Jack? Yeah, it, um, I love how you phrase it, too, because you're right. There is really no moving on. There's mm-hmm. just keeping on, right, or carrying on. And, yeah. Um, that's exactly what I did. You know, I, I had Jack, I hired a nanny. She started working with me and caring for Jack with me when he was 11 days old. Um, so, you know, I had support at home. I was back to traveling for work. Um, it was really lonely. I mean, I didn't want Mm. to not be a wife anymore. I liked being a wife. Mm. I, I was an adult, you know, I, I, my adult life was with another person. And so I knew what it was like to be in a relationship and I enjoyed that. And so, I didn't choose to be alone anymore. And that was really hard for me to reconcile the fact that something happened to me that I didn't have a say in the matter. And so my friends were really encouraging to say, you know, you're young, you have life ahead of you. There's no reason that you have to sit and play by any specific rule that says that, you know, you have to wait five years before you can start seeing other people in a row. But it's just so hard because there is a stigma that's out there, I think. But, Mm -hmm. um, it was my tribe that reminded me about the importance of being authentic, right? And that's just, if I listen to my heart and my heart says, I want to start talking to people again, I want to start sharing, I want to start being, exploring a relationship again, that's what I should do. And it was my tribe that really convinced me that that was okay to do. So it's like they gave me permission to do it. Hmm. So I met Rick um, and, you know, it started off as, I, I didn't know what it meant to date anymore, really. And so it yeah. started off as like, wow, I get to go out to dinner, like without any distractions. And I can just yeah. talk to somebody who <laughs> likes to read the same books as me and, you know, likes to talk and debate politics and is, you know, thoughtful in the sense that I am. And so it was really neat in the beginning um, where it was just so fun for me to have somebody to talk to and share and be open with. And Rick has... um a really fascinating story in that he has a 19 year old son, Josh, whose mom left the both of them when Josh was four. Wow. And so Rick raised Josh all by himself. Um, and mm. so he has his own opinions on abandonment and loneliness and the shock of life going in a direction you didn't expect or anticipate and huh. being a single uh-huh. dad, just figuring it out. He just, has this idea of, you know, there's no book. You just mm. deal with it, deal with the circumstances you have. And so we were able to bond over, yeah, you know, shared like but it. not so shared experiences. Yeah, which is just great. And mm. after a little while, 
um, you know, he's six years older than I am, so he's 40. And after a while, it was like, why are we waiting? I mean, if this feels right, and if we want to be a family and bless Rick for wanting to be a parent for Jack, which is no easy task for somebody who previously said he didn't want more children. Um, Mm -hmm. why, you know, why would we hold off and wait? So we got married this past April, um, at a really pretty wedding with just our closest friends. Well, we say our closest friends, but there were like a hundred people there. So either (laughs) we're too popular or, you know, a hundred is considered an intimate wedding now. Um, and it was great. It was super personal. Yeah. Um, and you know, then we combined our lives. So we're a little bit of a modern day Brady bunch in that I have a mm. two and a half year old and who just started preschool and Rick has a 19 year old who's going to college, Yeah. but you know, we're doing it together and it's fun and weird and sometimes really confusing, but always totally worth it. I love that. So tell me a little bit more about Rick. What is he like? He is, um, so he's, he'll probably listen to this and he's probably going to get really embarrassed when he finds (laughs) out that I actually said this. Um, But I go back and forth between calling him a history professor and a walking romance novel because he's romantic and sweet and thoughtful and tender. And, um, you know, he'll, he'll, he told me right before we got married that, you know, one of the things that he loves being married to me about is he always knows where I am in a room. Like I'm always his first priority when we're in a room together with other people. And so he wants me to remember that always because that's a sign of how he feels about me, where I stand in his life when it comes to a priority. And in the same breath, he'll start talking about some book on Plato that he's reading that, you know, I would never read because there's some trashy romance novel on my nightstand instead. (laughs) And so he's this great combination of, you know, smart and funny and really romantic and really kind and, um, I mean, my parents and my friends just love him. Jack loves him. Incredible. And so he's just added, yeah, he's added something really lovely and really wonderful to my life. Okay. That's so wonderful to hear about that. And you, you absolutely deserve that a hundred percent. Thank you. So when you marry someone as incredible as Rick, but you also have Dan in your past, how are you able to give space to both of these good men in your heart and in your mind? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. And I, um, I think two things. So first I think that our heart has the infinite capacity for love, right? This is how you can have multiple children and love all of them equally. Mm. This is how you can be in a marriage that is fantastic. And then that marriage doesn't go so well and you get divorced and you find somebody else who has, gives you similar feelings as you, as you experienced in the first part of your previous marriage. You know, you love your parents infinitely. So I, I don't think, I don't think there's a capacity for love in your heart. I think as long as you let yourself experience it, it's there. And the Mm. hard part is letting yourself experience it. And that's really more your mind, not your heart itself. And I think the second part is that the past, you can't have a future without the past. Mm. It's just impossible. And when Dan first died, I could not look at pictures. And I was just so consumed with anger. I just wanted to delete him from my memory. And, you know, it took time. But then it became, I do not have a future without a past. You can't have one without the other. And so by honoring your past and respecting your past, I believe you will have a more fulfilling future. You just have to convince yourself that that's the right thing to do. 
Wow. You know, Dina, how you talk, you've said how you're a type A personality, but (laughs) I, and I love hearing, like, I feel like I can hear that side of your personality and your voice and how you have moved uh, throughout this really difficult, you know, series of challenges. But I also hear acceptance. You know, you might be, you might be type A in some ways, but you're going to do it for the way that serves you best, that you feel is right, and it's going to serve your family best. And that that seems like such a tricky balance to strike. How do you do that? <laughs> how do you how do how do you be you and be driven and looking for goals and progress, but because it's driven by your heart and not by expectations of others or whatever else it could be. Yeah, and it's so hard. None of this comes easy at all, and it is. It's just it's so hard. But I will say. My friend Tara often reminds me when I talk to her about, you know, whatever crazy moment I'm having, um, she'll say, Dina, you do you. And I'll stop and go, yeah, I'll do me and it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's it. I think it is a sense it's living an authentic life. It's, It's living a life that is true to yourself and not apologizing for it. You know, every once in a while, I'll say something like, you know, I really want M&Ms and a diet sample for dinner, but you're not supposed to do that. And my friends will say, well, it's not like you're having heroin for dinner. You can do that. <laughs> it's fine. It's okay. You know? And, but, but it's a reminder that, you know, I don't have to live. None of us have to live by anybody else's expectations mm. other than our own. And if you set aside other people's expectations, or set aside the need for permission and you live your most authentic self, life is a lot more freeing and you're making better decisions. Well, bravo, Dina. I mean, I'm just so impressed by by you, and you've inspired me so much tonight. I would like you to just answer this final question, and it's, you know, kind of what we've been talking about throughout this interview, Um, so maybe it has to do with that, or maybe it's something completely different, but what have you learned about yourself the past few years? Well, I think it's okay to have those M&Ms for dinner, because... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't think life has to be so serious, right? Mm. Live who you are. If you live, if you live by your own rules, um, you know, it's life is okay. And I think that that is my biggest lesson. You know, my life went, was going down one path and it flipped upside down and went down a different path. And yeah, I figured out I'm strong and I figured out I'm brave and all of that came out. But gosh, I, I would not have survived any of this if I let myself, go along with what other people wanted me to say or do. I did it because I, I lived the life that I believe I'm, I should be living. Oh, so wonderful, Dina. This has just been such a powerful interview for me. And I'm really grateful that you would take a leap and be on this Weird Girls show. So thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm sure you are like me and just fell absolutely in love with Dina And like I said, she gives us so much perspective of our problems, but also just helps us know that whatever we are facing, the strength that we need to face that thing is truly within us. And Dina inspired me to think deeply about what struggles I'm facing that I just don't feel capable of and rise to the occasion and know that I can and that that strength is within me and I just need to allow it to blossom and to carry me through. So I hope you felt that as well. I don't want to leave you with much more than a big thank you. Thank you for an incredible year. Thank you for being such great supporters, 
loyal friends, community members of this podcast. Thank you for coming back and listening and thank you for sharing it and and for leaving reviews and all of that. That's all I have to say. Just a big fat thank you. And I am so looking forward to the coming year and continuing to build this community together. I will see you next Wednesday for another great interview. And until then, take care of yourself. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.